Um, first up, I have um, an apple for my snack, so um, you can expect to hear some crunchies. Sorry. <coughs> <coughs> Second, uh, tonight's question is courtesy of Daisy. Let me find my freaking studio so I can set my shit up because I didn't set my shit up before the show started, and I only had an hour and a half to do that. So, right? Okay. <coughs> I don't actually have a cold, so I don't know why I'm coughing now. I haven't even had any of my apple yet, so there's no stupid apple skin to worry about. Um, tonight's question we're going to do about writing, uh, but first, um, there's this person who emails me occasionally, um, Mike, talking to you, Mike, and Mike always uses my comment form instead of commenting on my site, um, and... Uh, Mike normally just has like you know complimentary things to say and da 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 da, and, or I wish you'd write something like this, or you know just shit that I really don't want to hear. Um, but Mike recently has been listening to my podcast, and Mike, if you're listening, um, I wanted to answer your question that you asked me today uh, on the air. You asked me, actually. You told me, you're not very nice. Why is that? I'm going to give you a pro tip. Women don't have to be nice. They don't have to be nice to you. And they don't have to smile for your trifling ass either. Just to let you know. Anyways... <clears throat> and I am nice, damn it, to people who deserve it. So fuck you. Okay. <laughs> Mike? And Brad, too, if you're listening, fuck you. I haven't forgotten. Um, uh, <laughs> Daisy asks, um, in the midst of reading Ties That Bind, I found myself wondering where you get your ideas from and how you are able to turn them into stories. You said before that you are a romantic writer and that you love happy endings. But would it be possible for you to explain your process of getting from a germ of an idea to, wow, I have to write that, or even, I nailed that sucker? You did a little of that in your plot drifts, which are wonderful. Thank you. And how, but how on earth you come up with different ways of describing a love story? Thank you, Daisy. Thank you, Daisy. <laughs> I want to tell you that every time I um, I see your name, I think of that character on um, Bones. So now that's what I think you look like. I hope that you don't find that insulting because she's cute. She's she's very cute. Um, <clears throat> now I don't know who. Um, I don't know if Helen Marin said that, um, but uh, uh, Shirley MacLaine said it in um, Steel Magnolias, and the line was, um, what she said was, is, I'm pleasant. I saw John Meekin to Piggly Wiggly and us a for some of a bitch before I could help myself. That's what I always think of when I hear, I'm nice, damn it. I think of um, Shirley MacLaine. Did my accent just get like three times thicker, or was that just me? Is that what I did? Did I imagine that? (laughs) 
pleasant. <laughs> she is getting her lips waxed when she does it. Yeah, it's pretty funny. She's the best part of that whole movie, which I watched the other day because I had to cry. Um, and those of you who are ladies, you understand that, the need to cry. I needed to cry, so I watched Storm Magnolias. So to answer your question, Jilly will, Jilly will be my guest this evening, and she'll be on the air momentarily. Yeah, the South went South. <laughs> I do. I used to have a very terrible accent. Most of them in my family do. Um, but as I've gotten older, I've kind of moderated it. I have a cousin who actually took elocution lessons to lessen her accent because um, she was having um, issues um, in her jaw where people didn't take her seriously because she sounded like Scarlett O'Hara. And literally, I mean, she just had this really terrible, terrible, thick, breathless kind of accent. And people treated her like she was stupid. Yeah, I get that sometimes. Um, people will treat me like I'm dumb when they realize that I'm Southern, because apparently dumb and Southern go together just for some people. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> anyways, Jilly will be my guest this evening momentarily. Um, I wanted to, um, before, uh, there's there seems to be... <laughs> some confusion. I was over at my Ask Me Anything page, and I'll be discussing this at length in my next podcast. We talked about internal and external motivations. Um, it's important for you to to recognize that your external motivations are actually, are actually most of the time your plot events, things that happen to your characters um, that influence them. That's your plot. So, when you're writing, you're already building your external motivations as you go along. If you write um, by the seat of your pants, and if you plot that, your plot is, they are, those plot points are your external motivations. Things that happen outside of your character's control are your external motivations, your plot events, um, the murder of Harry's parents, uh, his Hogwarts letter, um, the Dursley's response to his Hogwarts letter. These are all external motivations that happened to Harry Potter. Um, anyways, just just as an FYI. So, but we'll address that for in the future in greater detail. But I wanted to mention it this evening, just in case I had caused any confusion for people, and I think I had on that issue. So. <clears throat> anyways, I gotta find Julia in the list. There's quite a few callers this evening. Um, shit. Hold on. Okay. Is that you? That is me. Because there were like three people from your area code. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's kind of a freaky idea. And I was like, I'm pretty sure it's that one. (laughs) So... Hoping for the best. Hoping for the best. Um, <clears throat> anyways. Seven stories and their infinite possibilities. Um, a long time ago, and I forget who actually said it, um, someone said that there are only seven stories to tell. Um, and um, how they're told is what's important. 
and um, it's it, it's very true. There there are only so many ways that two people um, come together. Um, there are only so many ways um, that any event becomes a thing. You know, it's just there are a finite number of ways in the human experience that that things happen. So there are seven basic plots, and Julie just provided you um, a uh, link in the chat room, and I will put that link on um, the summary for the podcast for those of you who are listening to this in the future. Um, But what is um, important in that is that you... Take your own spin on those seven ideas so that you aren't um, retreading the same exact story. Because while, yes, there are only seven plots, there are an infinite number of ways to um, tell those stories. So we're going to discuss that this evening. Christopher Booker, is that what you, the person who came up with that idea? Thank you, Lady Holder. So, Jilly? Yes. Oh, oh, I wanted to say, um, Daisy, that it you have a little, little mistake in your um, question. You called me a romantic writer. I'm not a romantic writer. I'm a romance writer. And the difference between a romantic writer and a romance writer is Nicholas Sparks is a romantic writer. City of Angels was a romantic movie. It was not a romance movie. <laughs> yeah, we like a happy so, ending. Thank you very much. Um, Message in a Bottle was a romantic movie. But it wasn't a romance because a romance has a happy ending. Romantic movies often don't. Well, the ones that get critical acclaim don't have a happy ending. It's like, I swear, you need to have, you know, one of the main characters die at the end for the critics to think you did something good. Kill your darlings. That's right. It's evil. Don't do that shit. I'm not killing any of my darlings. They're going to live forever. Fuck that. I'm just saying. one of... For some reason, I don't know why, but one of the um, images in your uh, slideshow for the radio show, it looks Mm -hmm. like pubic hair to me. And so every time it comes by, I'm like, what's with the pubes? (laughs) Now I have to go look. (laughs) It's the Deborah Winger quote. I can't tell you why I think that looks like a bush, but there you go. Well, it is a bush. (laughs) It is a bush. Just not that kind of bush. (laughs) Exactly. Good thing this was R-rated. Okay. um, Let's see. Uh, Once a very long time ago, when I first met my husband, he, um, I was not first met. We were actually living together, so it definitely wasn't a first kind of met situation um i was um i had we were sharing an office at the time which was not conducive to my creativity by the way um and because he was very nosy and in my business all the time it was very difficult to write when when we shared an office but i was writing and i had my headphones on and 
I was just I was just riding away, and he tapped on my shoulder, and he was like, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm riding." He said, "Well, because my desk was empty in front of me, I just had my computer up, and I was." And he was like, "Where does it come from?" And I well, literally not had no the muses. No, there are no such thing. There's no such thing as a muse. Um, I literally had no answer for him. And if he asked me that question again today, I still wouldn't have an answer. Um, I guess it boils down to the fact that there are kinds of two kinds of people. There are creative people and there are non-creative people. And I don't know what non-creative people do with their brains. <laughs> I, I really don't. It drives me. I'm like, what the fuck are you thinking about when you're not doing anything? What do you do? What do you do? What are you doing with your brain right now? I know. It's like, what is going on in there when you're just sitting there? I mean, even when I'm watching TV, I'm usually spinning plots in my head. And with people who just sit there, I'm like, what are you thinking about? Oh, nothing. How is that nothing. even possible? What are you thinking about? <laughs> nothing. I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't. I I I really literally do not get it. Um, my brain's it always up. moving. It comes from what I want to see, you know, what what I want to read. Um, I don't think I would. I I I think I would still. I, I can't imagine that if every story I came up with, um, I would always make up stories in my head. But if I was completely satisfied with everything that I could find, everything I wanted in currently available. Um, to read, I, I probably wouldn't have as much motivation to write. It's sort of like the motivation to fix stuff in fan fiction, you know. It, with like we talked about with the canon, it's really satisfying. You're less motivated to get out and do something about it. Um, right. So the stories I want to read a lot of times haven't been told yet, so that's what I want to write about. I think if tomorrow I woke up and all the stories that I currently want were written for me, I just want new ones. <laughs> Well, I'd be busy for a few years reading all that crap. <laughs> right. I'd be busy for a while. And then I'll be okay, but what about? <laughs> yeah, and the more you read, the more ideas that come up, right? So it would be a, a, a never-ending cycle. But, like, if I if I could download my brain right now and it was all there, um, I would be, you know, I probably wouldn't write for a while because I'd be, like, satisfying that, that thing of those stories I want to see. Um, and then that would spin up more stories. I think the only way to stop... Um, that creative process is to stop engaging, you know, stop engaging with life in some way because that's where it comes from. Right. It's not greedy, Azure. It's not. It's not greed. It's curiosity. My mom likes to say that I stepped out of the womb curious. <laughs> and I was like, well, I hardly stepped. She said, no, that was your sister. My mom says I stepped out of the womb with an opinion. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't, you know, um, sometimes I'll be like, I wish I could read this story. And then I arrogantly think to myself, well, no one would write it to suit me anyway, so I better go write it. <laughs> 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 Which is, I know, it's terrible. I know. 
But the thing about being terrible like that is that I know and acknowledge it. So that's something, right? There you go. Self-awareness, you know, that's key. <laughs> you know, there were, there, were, there were story ideas I had, you know, 10 years ago that I really wanted to read, but I didn't feel that I could execute them well at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes those ideas come back around, and now there are, are stories I couldn't execute 10 years ago that I feel like I can't execute now. And I'm sure that there are ideas, there are, are ideas that have passed in my head and go, wow, that would be really great, but I don't know that I feel, I feel like I'm ready for that story right now as much as I would like to read it. Um, and sometimes somebody else satisfies that urge in that time period where you're kind of growing as a writer, but... Usually, you know, it all comes back around, and, you know, as your craft grows, you come back to those ideas you couldn't execute um, before, didn't feel like you could do them justice or whatever, and um, you get the opportunity to do it again or do and do it the way you wanted to do it. It'd be sort of like, you know, making the, the Lord of the Rings movies, you know, 20 years before they were made. The technology is yeah. right to execute it well, you know? Right. Well, you know, actually, that's one thing that, um, that James Cameron said about Avatar was that he'd had the idea many, many, many years ago, but didn't do it because he didn't feel like he had the technology available to him to make it like he wanted it to be made. And I think that that sometimes sometimes you have to have patience as a creative person for, you know, as a as a director, a producer, he had to write for. When the technology matched up to the to the story he wanted to tell, and um, to the vision, as, yeah, yeah, his vision. And as a writer, sometimes you have to grow your skill set to you know, um, to tackle certain difficult or more complicated or you know whatever the whatever the challenge is. Something that's outside of your normal wheelhouse. You know, you have to work on growing your skill to tackle some of those projects. And sometimes it just takes a little bit of time. And sometimes it's not so much a matter of skill um, or experience as is, like, my issues with synthetic. Um, My bones for that story are great. I'm so pleased with my foundation. I'm, there's so many possibilities and there's so many stories to tell in that universe. Um. But something's missing. And I don't think I realized it was missing until I was in the writing. And I was like, oh, you know what? There's just something wrong here. And I need to figure out what's wrong um, before I can write it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you and have to I don't, on those problems for a while. They don't, sometimes the answer just doesn't come to you easily, you know. That's just like with my, um, I have a Harry Potter project um, that um, I'm working on, and I've got the first draft, well, the second draft of um, the first book in a trilogy of books, um, and I don't want to put it out there, even though it's finished, because... It's my second draft, but it still feels like my rough draft. I don't, I don't, 
it's probably immodest to say, but it's a great story. I know which one you're talking about. It, it is a great story. Oh, thanks. Uh, thank you. Um, but it... Something... And it could be that it's because I'm not entirely sure where to start my book two. Like, where to go with my book two, which I have started three different times in three different locations, um, time period-wise. Um, like, do I start it here, you know, when when Harry's 11? Do I start it when Harry's 15 or 16? Um, what happened in between um, Harry at 8 and Harry at 16? What do I do with this? How does, you know, just how do these things, um, what is James doing um, now that he knows that, you know, Voldemort is out there, you know, um, and what's the game plan, what's what's happening, what's going on? Um, so there's lots of different questions I have to ask myself and answer for myself in a way that's very satisfying before I continue. And I think that is where... Um, your process begins um, as a writer. It's, it's, well, it's where my process begins. Like, okay, for instance, this this book in particular was based on a plot drift that um, I did with Jilly, where we talked about. Um, wasn't it you? Yeah, I think so. Who did that plot drift with me? Yeah. Um, where we talked about what would happen if James and Lily left Britain with Harry when they found out that Voldemort was targeting him. And the, and the results of that, what would happen if he had his parents? Um, and when would they return to Britain and what would happen when they did? Um, and so I told that story, but it was based, you know, any of you who listened to that on plot drift, you you know how that story was born. I mean, I I literally birthed that thing right there on live air. <laughs> um, at least the 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 meat of it. When I got ready to tell it, I didn't quite tell the story. I drifted. Yeah. But because sometimes you get into the writing and you go. Well, now, wait a minute. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. Or, how, how do I know, do this? this? Yeah. You have that just that moment of, you know, or something, I think one of the things that often um, is easy to get pushed aside is that when you're writing a story where it feels right in the moment, it's like this is a great scene. If you don't back up mm-hmm. and look at how they got to that point. Which is what I did. The, right. Is what what happened before that scene that's so good? It makes the scene fall apart because then you start questioning. Well, why did they do that, or why is this that way, or why are they in this place, or why would they even allow that to happen? Um, so, and sometimes you know that that stuff doesn't come come to your even in your plotting, depending upon where you start your plotting, it doesn't pop into your head that you have an issue until you start writing, and then you go, something doesn't feel right, and you kind of have to pull back and. And or look at it. Sort your shit out. Yeah. And I did, and I did sort my shit out. <laughs> and I, I feel like it's um it's tight. It's um it's a really tightly plotted um story. And I'm not trying to be a cock tease here. Um, it's just about my process, creativity. I mean, I'm I'm really literally not trying to tease you as readers. Okay, so this is not what this is about. Um, so I hope that you don't feel that. 
because um, you will eventually see it in all of its bloody glory. <laughs> but it is tight. It is very tightly written. Um, and uh, there's a there's a moment that comes in it when I was writing it and I went, yes. <laughs> I had that. This is it. Nailed it. <laughs> you had Very the fountain touchdown drop moment. moment. <laughs> Boom. And then, it, you know, often, you know, when, when, when you're, when you're writing and when, when you had that moment and you're like, hell yeah. <laughs> Boom. But so, and I, um, I honestly didn't have that moment with Lantean Legacy, the first one, no, 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 not even me was in, until I'd written the third or fourth draft. Um, and it's because I, and what happened with Lantean Legacy is I told something small. I had a germ of an idea, and I, I moved it around and developed it a little bit, and I sent it to Lady Holder, and I sent it to Chris, and they sent back 3,000 questions. I say 3,000, um, and I'm probably just slightly overestimating that. Slightly. Um, <laughs> but it also made me ask myself a whole bunch of questions. And, um, yeah, they they easily had 1K, um, 1,000 words of questions each. That's no Easily, maybe even more, um, on a story that at the time was only 25K. <laughs> That's just frightening. I'd have been like, <laughs> what the hell? But I think we added it up once, and between all the different rough drafts, um, there were probably like um, maybe like 1,000 or maybe 1,500 comments across the entire project because and, I, and it wasn't don't think that they were tearing my work apart they got stupid excited <laughs> it was just like ah, what, what about this this and this what do you, can we do this can we do that what do you think of this you know and it was just like boom because sometimes as a writer and lady holder and chris are both writers as well um when when you have a really startling idea and you share that startling idea with two other writers, it really shouldn't surprise you when they send back 500 questions. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. And they were all, woo! You know, and it was just, it was, you know, um, so this isn't like a thousand words of criticism. This is a thousand words of um, dolphin noise. <laughs> as Lady Elder just said in the chat room. Um, and it was questions, and can we do this? Can we have this? What do you think of this? How about this? Oh, can this happen? <laughs> what happens here? How did I get this? <laughs> oh, what about ancient ships? <laughs> I'm not even sure which which one of us asked that question. But it, So I think that the biggest thing in the creative process um, are the questions you ask yourself and the questions that um, that your betas ask you, that your that writers around you ask, um, um, and that's uh, how you go to amazing places. 
Yeah, and you have to be willing to be self-critical. You know, to I'm more critical of myself than anybody else. I work, you know, everybody, anybody who alpha reads or beta reads for me. Um, I, it, actually, if anybody is more critical of me than me, I kick them to the curb. Um, and the only reason, I, and that sounds weird and a little obnoxious, but um, it, it, I can't imagine that anybody could be constructively critical and be more critical of my work than I am. And the few I times think- I've had people be more more critical than I am of myself, it is because they weren't constructive. They were just this is I, stupid. It's abusive. Yeah. I would agree. If um, I encountered someone who was more critical of myself than than me, I I wouldn't work with them either because um, it's perfectly okay for me to self to, to say that that was shitty, but I I don't want to hear that out of my beta. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the first beta I had for You need emergence. to expand that a little more constructively. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> but she gets to, she, she's just like, just like a lot of criticism that was phrased in ways that sounded very um, editorial. And uh, then, you know, she finally starts letting some opinions out. And I was like, wow, she's really, like, beaten up on this stuff. And then she starts letting some opinions out. She's like, well, I really, finally she just basically says, I really think this whole dragon thing is stupid. And I went... I'm not even reading any more of this crap. I'm not going to do it because was, was this a beta on emergence? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know why she agreed to beta if she thought the whole concept was stupid. But that came out later, you know, like after I'd read like you know thousands of words of criticism. Um, is that she basically said that you know really the whole idea, the whole flaw, the whole concept of. Um, the whole concept of the story is flawed, and here's why the dragon thing is stupid. And then she starts going into the but, scientific but, side of things about how shape shifting and how you can't turn a, you know, 200 pound human into a 40 ton reptile. On rough and, trade. Yeah. It was all out there on rough trade. I, I know, and I'm saying it's not like I didn't explain what the, I mean. The summary of the story talks about dragons, right? It wasn't like it was a mystery. Like I said, it's I don't know why magic. she beta. Right, magic. Thank you very much. So, you know, I just, I just, I actually, I tabled the story for a while because I was so upset about that beta. And I told her, you know, I wrote her, I said, look, I don't think we're a good fit. I think you don't like the story. Um, and it really is just, it's abusive to you to read a story you clearly think is stupid. And it's abusive to me to have to read this kind of criticism. So, um, you know, I just. But yeah, that's why. So anytime I've had experience where people are more critical of my work than I am, um, it usually is because they're being obnoxious. Um, I, I just it is because they're being obnoxious because I can't imagine somebody being more critical because I I look at my stories and you know one of the things I primarily see are the flaws. There's like only a couple of stories where I don't like think of them, and the first thing that rattles through my head is the things that I should have done differently. So I get so fucking irritated with my own work sometimes. <laughs> I know, it's like, uh, like, why did I do that? Here's what's really interesting about betas, uh, especially, well, I've only ever encountered betas in fandom because betas don't exist in uh, professionally writing situations. I mean, not like they do, I mean, in fandom where you encounter betas who aren't writers. I mean, they're just readers who beta. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. I appreciate that. Um, work for free. How awesome is that? <laughs> but um, a lot of times uh, you will encounter readers who offer to beta simply because they want access to your work before everybody else. 
Yeah, and um, one of the usually the key signs of that is you don't get the beta back. <laughs> it's or like, um, it's like you six get weeks, the shitty beta like, back. Oh, yeah, or yeah, the shitty one. They're like, I got a beta back once. This was back in my old life. I got a beta back with a new beta, something I'd never worked with before. And they put a bunch of commas in, but every single comma they put in was wrong. <laughs> it was just like, um, Wait, I don't know what you're I'm doing. I'm, no. I'm terrible at commas, but I'll put them in a beta, like comma. <laughs> no, no, this is this is a long time ago. But actually, you're. I think you're better at commas than you think you are. You err on the side of not putting them in, which is better mm-hmm. than putting them in when they don't belong. You know, I actually. Right. Although I went to go read, um, I was thinking about trying to pick up and finish Subversive in January, and. Um, I uh, went to go reread it to kind of get back in the flow of it. And my grammar and punctuation is like the worst I've ever done in a rough draft. And I was so stunned at how bad it was that <laughs> I was like, I can't write in this story till I edit what's there and fix it because it's going to make me insane. <laughs> you were so concerned about your pronouns <laughs> that everything else was the back Anything else. <laughs> But I will say, I only screwed up the pronoun one time. I was like, I was like, I did pat myself on the back a little bit for that because I only screwed up my pronoun once. And I was like, oh, I referred to Rodney's he once, and otherwise I never got it wrong. And I was like, awesome. I, I, I was pretty good. <laughs> that is awesome because I don't fuck that all up. That I actually have an idea for um, a third gender story, um, which I've. Um, shared off and on with um, the bitches, um, the bitch squad. Um, oh, I had somebody ask me in an email. That it wasn't the main purpose of the email. They were talking about um, something I posted on LiveJournal um, about depression and PCOS. And, um, and at the very bottom of the email, they mentioned that they listened to the podcast and they wanted to know who the bitches are, <laughs> who the bitch squad is. And it's really funny. Because the bitch squad is me, Jilly, Lady Holder, Azure, and Original Tempest. And Senna. And Senna, Senna Minion. Um, yes. But Original Tempest is a man. <laughs> yeah, but he's one of the bitches. He's one of the bitches. <laughs> and really what it is, is it's a moderation chat for um, the, our various... Um, Endeavors because they're all mods on the forums and on Rough Trade and in Minion headquarters. So that's where it that that's what it is, and and that's really all it is. And sometimes we share pictures of cakes and cats, and um, uh, lemurs. <laughs> and lemurs. Yeah. And lemurs. <laughs> it's a very cute video of a lemur, though I have to admit. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, oh, in terms oh, of. Last time he was in the chat room, he was, I mean, in the um, in the chat, uh, he was fine. Um, he's just really, really busy with work. So he hasn't been around much in fandom. Yeah, he pops up. We, we yell at him for making us worry. Um, he uh, gets a few mea culpas and then entertains us for a while. And then he vanishes again. And we cuss him out for not being around more. Yeah. It's a thing. It's yeah. a routine. It's a thing. It's a routine. But he, but he's good as as far as we know. Um, just busy, busy, busy. Uh, but you know, 
I think that um, one of the questions in the in the in the question tonight is, um, you did a little bit in your plot drift, but how on earth you come up with so many different ways of describing a love story? It's not the story; it's the characters. Um, a love story is a love story, but how two people fall in love is unique. Every time. And if you keep your character fresh and twist them just a little bit each time you um, play with them, especially in, in, you know, in fandom, if you do that, um, they're not the same person. They're the same character, but they're not the same person. If you look, um, I think a really good example of that would be um, the Harry Potter um, who's in Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond versus the Harry Potter who is in um, uh, Courting Hermione Granger. Both of them were raised by Sirius Black, but they are entirely different people. Mm-hmm. But they're both still Harry Potter. <laughs> yep. And both very different from a Harry who grew up in his canon circumstances, the way you like right. to write him in Birth of Super King or War Mages. And that's two Harrys mm-hmm. that had canon circumstances but are also very different because of their life experiences. Mm-hmm. And, you know, right. at their age, I mean, Birth War Mages, Harry's an adult in a teenager's body, basically, whereas Birth of Super mm-hmm. King, Harry's a teenager. But And I think that that's the important part, um, is that you have to, when you're shaping your character, um, and Jilly mentioned this earlier, which is why she ended up being my hostage tonight. Um, is that you have to keep um, your character moving. That's not how she phrased it. Hers was much more eloquent. <laughs> and that you can't enslave yourself or your character to canon. No, it's a it's a real problem, and I I see this a lot. When I read people's, um, a lot of stories, I'll, I'll pick on the NCIS fandom a little bit, um, because I like to. Um, but They need it. Too many times I read stories I think have a lot of potential, but the characters read like parodies, because they have no life that isn't canon. And canon in NCIS is massively unfulfilling on the character development front. So if you try too hard to make them like they are in canon and don't, and also canon is very contradictory. So you just kind of get this parody of a character in a really interesting story, and it cosmically winds up feeling very unsatisfying. And I think when you try too hard, um, and and then they put them in a, in a difficult circumstance, usually it's a difficult circumstance, especially in NCIS, um, you put them in a difficult circumstance or you change their circumstances or you change canon in some way. And so you have this underpinning that is changed, but you try to keep the veneer of canon the same, like nothing would change. And that's just, and we see that in Harry Potter too a lot. We've talked about that extensively. It's like you change who Harry was raised by, you change everything about his past, and yet all the events in canon happen the same. It doesn't make sense. My twitched just now. Yeah. You see that in you see that in a lot of fandoms where people are trying too hard to make canon events happen. So an example is like um people try to address dead air. My 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 favorite topics in NCIS is dead air. And there and then at the end of the story there's all this rigor there's all this upheaval in the middle and the end we're back to canon. No. How does that how does that happen? How does that work? How do you have all this upheaval and make canon happen? 
And I think that that you know you're, you're introducing change, but not writing the ripples. People write, don't write the ripples of that change very well. And the more you try to preserve canon, and I assume it's a comfort level, is the more you try to preserve the canon of the show, the movie, the book, the less room you have to be um, to have vibrant original ideas because you're stuck with canon. And you change the underpinnings, but the veneer still looks like canon. There's, there's gonna, you're gonna have a hard time really germinating unique ideas in that kind of ecosystem. And you know, I, I do this too. I, I catch myself making this mistake um, that an idea sounds like a good idea, and I don't consider the repercussions of what I've done. So, for instance, I have been, I had plotted a. Um, story in the ties that bind universe and I wanted to set it in the in season six during the cloak and dagger arc when Ziva divide, defies orders and Tony gets uh, smashed in the face with a rifle but I wanted to make that the start of the story that whole scenario and the fallout of that kind of leads Tony to some epiphanies and kind of thing but the way I wrote I, I designed his character and what his backstory was and his house you know his 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 history with his house, it made no sense at all. And so I was stuck because I wasn't, I was trying to make something work in canon that wasn't going to work. I couldn't take Tony, who's a consort, and have that background and that training and that dignity and have, you know, seasons three through six happen. It doesn't make any sense. And I couldn't see for a long time that that was the mistake I had made. I just knew it wasn't right. Every time I tried to start it, it was an interesting scene, but it just fell flat. And that was me trying to make canon um, work in the story. And um, as soon as I saw that that was the mistake I had made, I had to abandon the idea. You know, I had to get rid of it because as much as I liked the idea, it wasn't for that story, and I could not make the character work. Um, without it just, it would fall flat. And Tony would kind of come across pathetic, which we know is my pet peeve. Um, so I had to back it up. You know, I backed it up to season two. And I'm much happier with the current idea. I can't wait to see it. I'm so excited. <laughs> um, someone had recently asked me if um, they could... Um, join Ties That Bind and write um, in NCIS, and I had to tell them no, Um, and um, because someone else already had it, and they wrote back and said, well, who? (laughs) (laughs) If you listen to my podcast, you would know, because it's come up before, but it's chilly, and and all I got back was that dancing cheerleader, (laughs) so so I guess they're happy. You know that one that Azure passes around, the the big girl who cheerleads in a circle? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. all I got back. That's all I got back. So I, I, I guess they're okay with with you having it. <laughs> I told her you can use my world building, you can use my houses, but you can't be connected officially to ties that bind because somebody else already has it. So yeah, I'm sure <clears throat> OCs too. Yes, I'm super excited about that too. <laughs> <clears throat> but um, but you have to you have to 
I think if you want to like have a breakout, I think if I if I were to advise somebody who writes like what I would call kind of under canon, like they kind of have a their storylines run under canon or they launch off of canon or they come back to canon at the end in some fashion, is try to free yourself from the canon of whatever it is you write. I don't mean free yourself in a way that is jarringly confusing, like, well, how in the world did this stuff happen in this order? I mean, you don't want, you don't want to, I don't, I don't mean in the sense of like, free yourself from to the point that nobody can follow what you're doing, but, um, you know, if if you're going to put say Tony in a in a in a circumstance where he's betrayed, um, if your end result is that he stays on the team with the team as it is, then uh, to me that is a problem of being too attached to canon because it doesn't. It, Unless it's, it's your goal to make Tony pathetic, then mission well, accomplished. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's why Tony Lee's in so many of my stories is because the canon circumstances he's in are enough to get him, to make him leave, in my opinion. And so I usually work with him having some kind of epiphany and um, leaving. Um, but At the very least, the team. Yeah, yeah, at least leaving the team, if not the agency altogether, because... It just doesn't. It doesn't. I don't know how to, you know, I don't know how to put put him in a situation where he's had a significant sort of um, transformative experience and had a significant profound realization about the situation he's in, and yet he stays because that just that just means he doesn't grow. He just is stuck in, um, you know. One of the things they did. I didn't watch the. Um, his last season, Michael Weatherly's last season on uh, NCIS. No, me neither. But one of the things Just they did to prep for him leaving and his departure was they spent a good chunk of the season from me reading episode recaps um, having all these weird things happen or people saying things that pointed out how pathetic his life was because all he had was work. Um now, if they had done all that, I mean, actually, I think that's kind of sad. But, you know, it, that is kind of the direction the show went, went. But if they had done all that and had him stay on the team at the end of all that, that would have been just worse beyond, wor- worse than what they actually did. You know, worse actually, that would have been worse than what they did. Um, but you kind of see that. Maybe only by a little bit. <laughs> yeah, very little bit. Because um, I was sure. I'll give up my pension yeah, and go so off and raise years. some kids that a woman I bear, that I um, haven't seen in, in five years uh, had without telling me. Sure. Right. But, Tony, you know, it's just that whole – they set him up to be in the position. We all saw – I think most a lot of, a lot of NCIS fans saw that – they were kind of writing Tony that direction of having no real substance to his life outside of his work fairly early on. So it is extremely pathetic that it's like season 13 before Tony realizes it. I mean, that makes him like, you know, by canon, like the most clueless person on the planet. 
and like no self-awareness at all. But like once he once he becomes aware of it, he and the thing is what bothered me is he had all this stuff going on. I thought the right thing to do with that setup would have had him say, I want more, and I'm leaving because I want more. But what he left for was because, I think the quote was he'd never had anybody who needed him before or something like that. And I just, bleh, kind of made me throw up a little bit. <laughs> but you know, Although... What amused me most about um, Genozo's exit from the show is they totally used the excuse they use to get rid of a woman. Yeah, true. Oh, she can't be a cop anymore because she has a kid. Okay, okay. <laughs> it's so fucking lame. <laughs> I'm I sure Fornell is really um, not insulted at all by that writing. <laughs> oh, sure. Denozo gets to be a good dad and not have a dangerous job, but here I am working at the FBI. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then somehow um, they moved him to Paris, I think. They made mention of him in a later episode. And he had taken his daughter and moved to Paris or something like that. I was like, okay. With what? Because they kind of set it up in the last season that he was on that he didn't really have any money, that he had done some trickery to get his apartment. It was all very weird. If he had no money and he gave up his pension, unless I let him retire with it, which I doubt. Yeah, no. I mean, he had 15 years. Was he living on Ziva's money? Ziva could have left him money. I don't know. Oh, here's a kid and my money? That would be actually an improvement. Here's a kid and my dad's money. because It probably wasn't ours. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) But, you know, I also, you know, I would encourage people when they are, like, Considering things, consider something wacky, you know, consider something completely wacky. And then, um, I'm not saying go out and necessarily write the wacky, but just sit down and think about it, something that's completely off the wall, completely unexpected, and then let it percolate, germinate, until something kind of matures out of it. Um, I think my biggest wacky was um, I had this, I had this um, weird idea of the Incredible Hulk being in D.C. and um, becoming infatuated with Tony and sort of um, hanging out around his apartment at night and stuff, outside his building and stuff and freaking people out. <laughs> That's it adorable. Was a, it, was, it, was a funny, it was funny and it was cute, but it wasn't, to me, it wasn't like, a, like the idea crossed my mind and I was like, it... Um, it wasn't a full-fledged story, and I knew it wasn't right yet. It was kind of a little bit edged, a little bit towards cracky, which isn't really my thing. Um, and so I kind of just let that kind of percolate in the in the back of my brain, wondering where I was going to go with that idea. And then we had the little first little black dress challenge, and I thought, oh, 
I can, can make the connection between them not just be some random right. thing, but just be because of the Sentinel Guide Bond, and that actually solved a lot of the problems I had, and it would make Tony less skeptical of, because that'd be kind of freaky to have the Hulk fixated on you if he wasn't your Sentinel. So, um, But when you said that, something really amusing um, kind of hit my brain. And it's a scene where the Avengers are all at breakfast in the Avengers Tower, and Tony turns to Bruce and says, So, the Hulk's gay? <laughs> the, the big guy's gay? And Bruce is like, what? And they're all like, wait, you don't know that he's stalking a federal agent in Washington? <laughs> Can you imagine Bruce's face? It'd be great. That'd be awesome. <laughs> so see, that's what happens when when your mind is is um, kind of working. Um, is that you can kind of play off somebody else's idea and, and get really amusing things. And so I look at that scene where they're all in the tower. How'd they get there? How'd that happen? Um, who's paying for that? You know, just all kinds of things kind of pop into your head. Is this before or after Civil War? <laughs> if so, Everything is before lucky. Civil War didn't happen. <laughs> right, I agree. Everything's before Civil War because Civil War didn't happen in my head. Um, we can keep the Black Panther. He can still come. Over. I appreciate the Black Panther because he's beautiful. Um, but I don't need to see the rest of that shit. <laughs> but exactly, you put your character down in a situation, in a scene, in a moment, and then you ask how your character got there. What's your character thinking? What's your character want? Where does your character go next? What's happened to your character? What's going to happen to your character? And that's how I build a story. I have a moment, and I build around that moment. And um, and the how I build, I mean, the you guys have seen happen. me. I'm, right. You ever had that, that where the that moment, thought, the moment that you yeah. based your story around doesn't wind up happening? Um, yeah, that's just so bizarre. It, it's happened to me more than once where I go, this moment, I need this moment, and then you go off and craft the story, then that moment doesn't fit anymore. And actually, that's you were discussing um, Little Black Dress, and um, I was reading um, earlier uh, The Air of the Angels Breeze, and it reminded me of the story that was inspired by The Air of the Angels Breeze, Angels Breathe, because I was reading that before we did one of the Little Black Dress cha- challenges, and there's a line in that story where they're, um, John and Rodney are having sex, and there's a line where um, I reference their eye color, um, and it's blue eyes meet green, or blue or green eyes meet blue. It's part of the of the line in this particular um, story, and that's where the title for one of my um, Sentinel stories uh, came from, from blue to green, green to blue, or green to blue, green to blue. I think it's from green, green to blue. Um, that's the that was the whole. That's what that was the moment. And I was trying to figure out how I would get there and then we had the sentinel the the little black dress challenge was coming up and I'm like, Okay, I'll put that down for my title for one of my stories because I it just kind of was percolating in my head over and over again that moment in when um 
the air the angels breathe, that particular moment was um, kind of just moving around in my head for weeks. Uh, I said and so, blue green. from blue to green. Yeah, from blue to green. Um, <laughs> and when I, um, if you read the air the angels breathe, and then you go back and read um, from blue to green, green to blue. Mm-hmm. What was green. it again? Blue to green. Blue to green. From blue to green. Um, you will see, you will you will see a slight mirror mirror of the moment in the sex scene from one sex scene to the other, um, because that was the moment that inspired the rest of that fic. Because I don't know about you, but looking into somebody's eyes during sex can be really uncomfortable. Yeah, it's it's incredibly intimate. It's incredibly, incredibly intimate. And in my angel story, there the angels breathe, um, that intimacy is um, friendly and fun and um, sweet. And it's like a, a finally moment. But from blue to green, it's an awakening of a past love and um, a renewal of of passion and lust and um, the creation of their bond as sentinel and guide. So it's very primal when their eyes meet. Um, And that's where the idea came from. I was like, why, why are they looking at each other? You know, what's going on in this scene? Why are they looking so, why are they so focused? You know, and it just kind of spread out around that moment. So yeah, I and kind I of did, like inspired myself. <laughs> you did, and I did that with, um, which was your inspirational story? Oh, it was, um, it was, it was something in Emergence. It was, in, it was in that, um, that uh, the sequel up on Evil Author Day, where um, um, I, and the thing is, I hadn't even consciously thought this out, but I had that Rodney meeting Tony for the first time on the spirit plane and observing how much he looked like John. Which until I started writing, I hadn't ever thought about the similarities in eye color, in hair color, in facial structure, in height, in build. I was like, and so I start, and so he calls him Diet Shepherd. And um, and so I had this, um, and that's where the idea from that moment right there, which they're not, John and Tony are not related in emergence at all, but that's where I had the idea come from that the two of them were brothers. And it just got stuck in my head like glue. I could not get it out. Diet Shepherd. The two of them were, <laughs> Diet Shepherd. Um, I could not get it out of my head that John and that John and Tony were related, and that's how If Found came about. Was um, the of of like oh, if they're family, if they're related, what would that look like? And I happened to be watching um, Frame Up one day, and I went, "What if they? What if Tony was kidnapped when he was a baby?" And they find out in that moment when his DNA is run in that crime scene, and I actually had to. Re- backtrack my idea on how they found out exactly because um, um, DNA searches don't work quite the way I originally thought that they did. But anyway, 
Um, so that has what that inspired that is I started writing that uh, I was just making Rodney be snarky. You know, I was writing Rodney be snarky with t- Tony and um, thinking, you know, he didn't think Tony was real and he thought he was some kind of projection of John or some way and so he called him Diet Shepherd and I was like, so out of snarky, you know, out of Tony's, out of, out of Rodney's snarkiness came, um, which is one of my favorite stories of mine, which is the, the If Found verse where Tony is um, Patrick Shepard's kidnapped son. Um, so, but it's just sometimes, you know, when you have, that's where those little ideas come from, you know. It's sometimes it's something that you see, sometimes it's multiple little things that come together and it's like, okay, well, there's the idea. Now it's fully formed. Um, but, you, you know, I, I would say people, you have to let yourself ask those questions about, and explore things that are wildly divergent from canon and take things way away. Because I think a lot of writers and a lot of fandoms are very comfortable with canon. Especially, you know, you could often often spot the, um, it's often pretty easy to spot, like the Harry Potter writers who don't actually know the canon very well. Um, because they, you know, but anyway, that's really not the point. But the point is, is that it seems like sometimes the more or people the know ones the canon. Or the ones who read the books and not watch the movies or the ones yeah. who've watched the movies and not read the books. <laughs> yeah. I read, I read a story once where Harry's eyes were blue and, um, um, you had to have not been, not reading the fandom at all. And, um, you had to have, uh, um, um, not read any of the books to think that Harry's eyes are blue. Right. Jilly's If Found has inspired me. Um, it's given me a little idea about Sentinels of Atlantis. I keep flip-flopping back and forth on what sort of... Um, how I'm going to bring um, Tony into the Sentinels of Atlantis universe. Um, I've already recast a part of... Uh, uh, Declan Frost, because I knew that I was gonna, br- I thought I was gonna bring Tony in after what Jilly did to me. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm on the fence about how it's going to happen. Uh, uh, so, um, but, but Tony is coming to um, Sentinels of Atlantis, yeah, and um, so it's gonna be that. interesting in how, um, how it's going to happen and um, what's going to happen with it. So. <laughs> Someone in the chat room mentioned Vicious, which was my um, Secret Santa gift for for our fellow minion. I got lucky on who I drew. I drew Desert Poet, and I got to write her that story. And um, that was another case of where I had another a, a sort of like fragmented ideas that hadn't come together yet. Um, and one of the ideas I'd been kind of playing around with for a long time, and I sort of. Um, I played with it the first time in uh, a short that I wrote for Teen Wolf. It's the only Teen Wolf story I've written where Styles has a baby spirit guide. And, um, the, and in that case, I wrote it because it's a representative of new souls, that when the sentinel or guide is the, that the age of the spirit animal is reflective of how old a soul they are. And um, so Styles is a new soul, and so he has a baby spirit guide. But it, it was never an idea that was completely, I was completely satisfied with, with that world building. And so 
um, that idea of baby spirit animals um, kind of buzzing around in my head um, for a long time. And then um, I was plotting out um, a Sentinel Guide story for this Secret Santa fic, and I thought, I'm going to try to work in a baby baby spirit animal. Let me think about how that would be. And I fleshed out the world building. And um, it's kind of crazy that my one of my favorite original characters of my own is a cat. She's so cute, though. She's adorable. I want one. Me <laughs> too. <laughs> to quote Tony Stark. Um, oh, you know, um, I'm... I've said it before, and I'll say it again, um, that um, Lantean Legacy is basically an AU of what might have been. Um, because I uh, I had several ideas about how, about Atlantis being sentient. And um, when I decided to use that and what might have been, I also thought to myself, oh my god, that if it's sitting in Atlantis and in in Pegasus. That's that's so shitty. <laughs> John, you asshole <laughs> <laughs> So then I started thinking, Well, what if Rodney had gone? And how would that go? Um and so that's where uh Lantian Legacy uh was born. It it was because I I felt bad because I realized that um, that that John had left Atlantis, Atlantis, Alley sleeping in Pegasus. And at this point, in what might have been, they don't know the extent of Alley, and they don't know about Theseus, um, because they didn't have enough power. They never had enough power to um, wake her up, fully wake her up. So she couldn't communicate with them. Um, so she's sleeping, but Theseus isn't. That's so sad. And so when I realized it, I was like, oh, God, I'm an asshole. (laughs) Because at the time, when I first had that idea, Theseus didn't exist. Because Theseus came during the second or the third draft, Lady Holder. Because originally it was just Allie, and then I realized I needed something more, something more fundamental. Um... And um, I was really, um, I've always been really enamored with the, the living ship on Farscape. Um, yeah. So I wanted to kind of play with that. Um, but Theseus wasn't in the original draft. He wasn't. Um, so it wasn't like I knew when I first had the idea that John had left Theseus as well. But so John and what might have been doesn't know Theseus exists. So um, writing that is going to be really, really, really um challenging um when when john comes to terms with with what he left in pegasus and who that just it hits you in the fields yeah i've hit myself in the fields a couple of times this over the past couple of weeks um because i was telling um the bitches earlier that i was that i um keep closing and opening beads on her feet because in my plot um, I'm at a point where something really fucking horrible is about to happen, and I don't want to write it. But if I don't write it, the, the catalyst for what happens next isn't there. So I have to write it. I just don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to. It's going to make me cry, and I don't want to cry right now. 
<laughs> I've already done my cry. I should have I should I should have wrote that while I was trying to watch Phil Magnolias. <laughs> there you go. You needed to cry. You should have done it then. Well, it's going to be um, powerful and difficult, but I don't know. Sometimes I've made people cry, and I was really surprised. Yeah, every once in a while you get people right. You say, "This made me cry," and you're like, "It did." Really? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make you cry. That's not what I intended. But I also wrote um, something. I had this idea, and it's um, percolating the idea. And I've sometimes when I'm one of the ways that I plot is I will write out scenes um, and then go back to my plot and see how that's going to work, and then ask myself questions and then build my plot. So I have like little test scenes I put together. Um, just kind of just a work product, I guess you'd call it. Uh, and I had written this scene where um, it's uh, Molly has cursed Harry with um, with a spell that is, has rendered him impotent until he confesses who he's in love with. Because she thinks um, he's got cold feet about being with Jenny. But that's not why he broke up with Jenny. Um, and um, so I'm writing this test scene, and it's where um, Harry has to go to the borough and confess to Hermione that he's in love with her, and Hermione is already engaged to Ron. And Harry is uh, of, the, uh, of the opinion that um, doing this is going to destroy his relationship with them both, and that it's Molly's fault. Molly has ruined the only two relationships that he can count on in the whole world. And they're going to be gone because he has to confess this. Because that's the only way to get rid of the spell. So I'm writing my little test scene to figure out what I'm going to do with this idea. And when I was writing Harry's dialogue for it, I burst into tears. I... <laughs> I made myself cry like a baby over this test scene. I'm like, well, shit. <laughs> and I'm getting a little teary. I just now stop talking about it because it was really upsetting. I really upset myself with my little writing exercise. And I don't do that often. You know, I do a lot of writing exercises, but I often upset myself to the point where I cry during a writing exercise. So, Yeah. I make myself cry with the writing, and sometimes it's weird. It's like I don't know if, because sometimes the the most emotional, apparently the most emotionally effective stuff from the reader's perspective is not stuff that hit me particularly hard. Um, and sometimes the stuff I feel like it's just gonna, it just kind of destroys me. It's like, you know, nobody really reacts to. So it's like it's kind of like it's weird how there's like this little bit of divide about sometimes the things that affect me in the writing process versus how the readers interpret it or how it affects the readers. Um, mm-hmm. But sometimes I wonder if I'm just, you know... Part of it also is I try to get really into my character's head when I'm writing. And um, so sometimes things are more upsetting to me than they would be to the reader because I know more about what's going on. Uh I'm, I'm and, over here nodding my head like you can see me. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, I I went a little too deep, I guess. Um, and for those of you who are um, super curious about what happens, um, uh, 
Harry leaves the borough, and um, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that idea, so I'll tell you about it. I don't want to be a, a, a total whore, tease, tease whore. Um, uh, and he goes to Godric's Hollow to visit his parents, Grace, because he's going to leave Britain to go be tra- go, go get training with the ICW. Um, and um, Hermione and Ron follow him to the cemetery, and they confess that they're only getting married because Hermione wants to have babies, and that Ron's gay. <laughs> and that he's hiding his gayness from his mother by marrying Hermione. <laughs> You know, Ron being gay suddenly makes him a lot more tolerable as a character to me. Oh, and it's really funny because um, Ron leaves them and um, <coughs> goes to <coughs> confess to his mother that he's gay, um, basically out of revenge for what she's done to um, to Harry, you know, uh, upsetting him as she has. And um, then Harry has to leave. He has to go to do his training. He has to leave. And so Hermione's standing there. And then all of a sudden, Molly's Patronus appears in front of her and demands that she come to the burrow and tell, and tell Ron he's not gay. <laughs> so I made myself laugh my ass off after I cried, but I, but I still cried first. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, it's just what it is what it is. Uh. But, you know, in terms of, like, you just you just um, kind of hit on, one of the things you do is when you're germinating an idea is you sit down and do a test, test scene. You write something about it. Um, and see what kind of questions it generates and how it what feels. What kind of interest it generates. Are you, I mean, sometimes when you write a test scene, it's like all you can think about is getting back to that and keeping going, you know, keep going, I want to keep going, I want to keep going. And um, sometimes so you got like, 40K eh. and you're like, what? <laughs> I was like, whoa, wait a minute, I need to stop and That's plot. not what I intended to do. <laughs> but, you know, I, I really think that for people, um, this is, there are a lot of fan fiction writers I know who, Every word they write winds up on whatever archive they um, they they put their experiments out publicly, right? So, or they There's wait nothing until wrong stories, with that if you want to do it. If you want to do it, I'm not saying it's a problem. We're not criticizing that, you if you do that. No, what I'm saying is that um, if the only if the only things you ever show, this is just kind of a sort of a cautionary tale, is if the only words that you write are words that you show, you're hampering yourself. You're constraining yourself. Because not everything I write is worth showing, but everything I write is worth writing. Sometimes I write things that are too personal to share. Yeah. I have a... um, a John Rodney story um, that's um, a little over a hundred thousand words, and it's finished. Um, I wrote it four years ago, and no one's seen it, not even Lady Holder, because it became a very personal, very personal um, story, and I I don't share it. I can't share it. It's it, it's because it came, it became something really intimate for me, and um. <laughs> And it revealed things about me as as a writer that I was uh, no no one's ever reading that. 
And I have yeah, plenty of short stories that are original fiction that are the same way that I would never let anybody read because um, they're very personal. Yeah, they are. And they're experiments, and they're worth writing, and they're worth doing, and um, some things you never show to other people. Um, but if the only writing you do is stuff you're crafting to show or to put up, um, I really do think you're you're hamstringing your creativity because you need to experiment. Um, you need to you need to give yourself the freedom to write something bad. I've done that. I mean, I sat down or worked on something and I got done with it and I went, oh my god, that's crap! What utter drivel! Um, I wrote a, a sex scene exhibition for um, Ties That Bind that I cut out and replaced it with something else um, because it was too kinky. Think about that for a second. (laughs) I've actually worried that the sex I'm working on for the story is too kinky. I, the, the first scene that I wrote for when John and Rodney are on the island in Singapore and they do an exhibition for um, uh, Dr. Raja. I don't know how you actually say that. I hope I'm saying it right. Don't. That's how I've always if I said it wrong. Said sorry. Was your character? You could make it. You could make, well, make it. Well, Dato is actually a title in Singapore. It's an honorific. So if I'm fucking that up, sorry. <laughs> That's not, yeah. Um, uh, if um, and I, I I wrote it and I was like, oh shit, that no. And I pulled it out and I set it aside and then I rewrote that exhibition scene. Um, so for those of you who read Ties That Bind, um, yes, there are certain scenes in it that are too kinky to share. That I that I, that I wrote that I, that I did not share because they're too kinky. And that was one of them. I was like, oh, I went too far. And then there's another one that I wrote and thought, no, I can't. Because um, it was very well done. It was a sex scene. It was just a regular sex scene. Not regular. For Ties That Vine. It was a regular sex scene for Ties That Vine. <laughs> but then I thought, no, I can't share that. Because um, what takes place in that scene um, could be dangerous if some jackass tried it without any experience in it. And I was like, mm, no. <laughs> yeah. I want to put a warning on it. Don't try this shit at home. <laughs> Don't try any of this shit at home. I mean, come on. Which but, is why you know, I also I... haven't done any play piercing for John and Rodney because um, that isn't the kind of thing that you can play with at home if you don't have the experience with it. You can cause yeah. nerve damage. Um, you can cause infections. Um, you can cause um, skin tears. So while there is play piercing in Ties That Bind that was witnessed on stage with Sean and Declan, um, I've never done it with John and Rodney, even though it's a kink for both of them, and I've mentioned that, because um, it's a more that don't try that at home kind of thing. Yeah. Um, which is really sad because um, play piercing is like my, my biggest, my single biggest kink. It's like personally. I never... Um... Um, right fire play because I don't want people even thinking about trying that. Because if you write yeah, the safety so stuff, if you write the safety stuff in, it's boring as fuck. It is so dull. He's not to sexy. Explain. 
<laughs> yeah, it isn't. It isn't sexy, but it, but the thing is, if you're sitting there going, really, I don't know about writing and somebody setting somebody on fire if I don't explain how you make it safe. Because what's well, some, some idiot reads this and goes and tries to do that, and burns their fucking house down. Right. Well, that's also why I haven't put any urethral urethral sounding in ties that bind. Because in all honesty, with the level of masochism that McKay enjoys. Cock torture should really be part of his his kink. Well, I told um, you I was going to write Tony I, being into CBT, right? And I started writing that, and I'm like, this is so kinky. I'm going to get in so much trouble. <laughs> and I put sound. I did. I did write sounds. So I I I'm like I need to take it out. <laughs> don't put things in your penis if you don't know what you're doing. Rule, life rule. Don't put things in your dick if you don't know what it's, you're doing. Yeah, because I, you, honestly, as at McKay's level, it is a hundred percent likely that he would enjoy cock torture. But I can't write that because I have a lot of young male readers, um, and I just don't want to encourage that kind of exploration. Because it's dangerous and people are stupid. <laughs> it is dangerous and people are stupid. And let's I mean, just it's like, I write awesome sex, so if I wrote that, it would be great and it would be hot and it's like, it would be encouraging and we just can't do that. Some idiot's going to go get their toothbrush and try to shove it down their dick and it's going to be like... <laughs> <laughs> but Jilly said, no, Jilly didn't say... <laughs> She did not say to put your toothbrush in your penis. Stop it. <laughs> there was no toothbrush in that scene. But yeah, so I don't I that's one thing I would not write. Um uh I probably would write uh other cock tortures, but I wouldn't write sounding. Um and also I I don't I often put chastity devices in um ties that bind, except for that one in the punishment scene. Because um I've seen BDSM fix where a sub is made to wear a chastity device for days. You you know that's dangerous, right? <laughs> I mean, like go to the hospital and get shit amputated dangerous, right? You're Some aware of chastity devices are just kind of crazy. And they're not meant to be worn for hours, much less days. Some, some, okay. There are people who put those things on and think it's okay to do it for a month or two at a time. No. There's this is not. blog, I, this Tumblr, I stumbled, stumbled across to this guy's, um, and I had to get out of it really quickly because I was like, I can't deal with what he's writing about. But he was writing about his, his journey with his mistress with going into chastity, and it was a day-by-day account, and the current, I mean, the early posts were the first day. Okay, first day in chastity. He's posting pictures and stuff. But the top of the blog where I came in, he's like at day sixty-two. I was like, no, <laughs> no, I gotta exit this. I can't deal because I'm gonna, I'm, I'd be the person responding to his post, going, "Young man, you need to take that thing off and go see a doctor right now."
Oh my God, no. Um, I'm not allowed to discuss Fifty Shades of Rape because I can't be trusted. I'm sorry. Fifty Shades of Grey. Because I'll be violating my own rules about bashing, which I've already done once. I have a whole show on it that's still up, even though it's embarrassing to myself. You gotta own your mistakes. That's right. Well, you know, it is. There's, there's a lot of Although stuff. Although I do you read wish in. Mystery Science Theater would watch the movie and do that for us. Yeah, yeah. Don't do this. Or I, actually, I'm pretty sure that that kind of commentary exists out there already of people who are in the scene commenting on all the mistakes in um, Fifty Shades of Grey. The problem with it is I'd have to read the book to do a commentary about what they're doing wrong, and I wouldn't want to do that. No. No. There's actually a really good, awesome, fantastic fucking review on Goodreads about Fifty Shades of Grey. You should go read that. That will fulfill that desire in you. And the New Yorker's review of the book is also hysterical. When they, at the end of the review, they talk about that what uh, Mr. Gray really wants is a pony. It's just... I laughed at that whole fucking review. We 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 have to stop. I can't be trusted. <laughs> we can't be trusted. It's terrible. But a lot of fictional BDSM does get a lot of stuff wrong. Um, but you know, I can kind of overlook some errors to some degree, as long as everything is actually truly consensual. And that's one of the problems we have in in in. And this isn't a bash of, of a particular book or a particular author, but it's a problem systemically in fandom and in um, original fiction, is people don't understand what consent is. You know, um, if someone consents under duress, that's not actual consent. If someone is um, coerced, that's not consent. Just because, I mean, it just it drives me crazy. And, you know... I just I read stuff and I'm like. I was accused of consent issues in ties that bind, Um, not with sex and not even with the BDSM that takes place between John and Rodney, but with the punishment scenes. Um, In particular, the scene where John punishes um, that civilian for abusing Mika. Um, But it needs to be said, and I outlined this pretty clearly. I thought in my world building that that dude consented to be punished that way. Because he had a choice between being sued in civilian court or accepting corporal punishment. Those were his choices. He chose not to be financially decimated by the shepherds. The only non-consensual punishment that takes place in Ties That Bind happens to Adam. And that's when Dato Raja... Um, maims Kevin Jordan for life and I warned very specifically for it yep and honestly as part of a world building I'm I'm perplexed about the whole consent issues thing because there are cultures um, today that that use corporal punishment and you don't have a choice about it that's their system of government and there are plenty of people in jail who are not there by their consent 
Right. So if the, we if don't your ask world, prisoners if they can go to jail. <laughs> if your world building contains the system of punishment that involves corporal punishment or something of that nature, yeah, like if you if you if you get in trouble in Singapore, you're going to get your ass caned. That's just the way it goes, and it doesn't matter if you like it or not. Um, but if your um, if your world building yeah. has a system of, of governance that that and has corporal punishment as part as of, of the as part of the, the punitive system as part of the 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 punishments for for criminal behavior, then that's I, I, I'm I'm befuddled why somebody would go, you know that's that's because like and you that's said, also the difference between the two different punishments. The scientist that John punished was punished for a social crime. Kevin Jordan was punished for. A criminal act. And threatening to rape a geisha is a crime. Geisha. A geisha. Um, threatening to rape a geisha is a crime. On, in ties that bind. It is a, if he were in Japan, he would have lost his head. <laughs> Literally. So in ways, he's fortunate he ended up in Singapore and not in Japan. Because they would have cut off his head. And they wouldn't have asked his permission first either. And the funny thing is, I imagine the person who wrote you about that consent issues in the story probably wouldn't have blinked about him being executed. No, not at all. Because that never came up. They didn't mention Jordan at all. Just that one scientist who was um, punished for his um, social misconduct. It would definitely be Japan's consent, yeah. I don't know. You know, I people pick at me sometimes for ties that bind, um, and I don't know why. Um, I've also gotten um, some really snarky emails where um, uh, one reader in particular was quick to point out that um, Zant's story was much more realistic and much more um, um, gritty and, and true to life. Um, um, because I avoid uh Zanth has some really hard themes in her BDSM world work. Um uh, punishment um is absolute, corporal punishment is absolute in her world. Um there's uh um there's there's, there's issues of force and um so it's like you, know, you have to be careful when you read it. Um and I avoid every at every opportunity I avoid uh, any any idea of um, rape or um, force, and I would never write it. I mean, there's a scene in what might have been where there's the threat of it, but it was never, ever, ever going to happen. Yeah. Um, so I was accused of it, my work not being realistic because there was no rape in Ties That Bind. Not well, that there's any, I, don't, I don't remember any rape in... Um, coming home either come to think of it I don't remember I mean there are some issues there there are hard issues and there's an issue there's there's a scene where Rodney's almost forced into a collar um but that's not well but in your anyway in your story (laughs) in Ties to Bind um I mean I assume that rape happens in that world it's just not happening to any of the characters on screen I mean I never got the sense that crime is gone no no it's there and Ron, there, and, just, not, why you're just not. You're just not. Um, 
focusing on it. But I don't know to say. To, I don't mean this as a diss on on Xanthi's material. It may be Xanthi. I always pronounce it Xanthi, so it's a bit stuck in my head. Um, I had no it, idea it, how she uh, pronounces it. I'm, I'm terrible. Okay, go ahead. Um, but this is, this is not a diss of her work when I say I don't know how you can say that it's more realistic because BDSM worlds don't exist. <laughs> so that's like right? saying, and frankly, the the um, the BDSM community that I know is actually more focused on consent than in Xanthi's story, which makes sense in the sense that hers is an entire world built around it, and so the rules would be different. But real life is more consent-focused. So saying that, um, or it's a crime, you know, that's the distinction. Here is it's a crime when you do that shit without somebody's permission. And um, so I don't know how you can say that because there's not rape, um, or people aren't being forced into doing stuff that it's more realistic. Because how can you say something's reality? It's complete fantasy. It's completely made up. You know, it just I'm just completely flummoxed. That's just weird. The person also had a problem with my social contracts, and I wrote back and I said, "You you do realize those social contracts actually exist in reality, right?" What a nit. And they were what like, they no, saying, that's, that's I not true. I was like, yeah, that is fucking true because she said my contracts were unrealistic. Huh. Her, <laughs> your you eyes know, just crossed because mine did again. When I, when I read it, did. I was like, are you fucking serious? <laughs> the thing is, is what I'm hearing between the lines, you know, when I hear stuff like that, is that she wants more abuse and more rape. <laughs> Whatever. Read something else. I, I you know, also wondered okay. if she ever emailed Xanth and asked for more rape and abuse because there's no rape or there there's no rape in um coming home. I don't remember that in any or of the stories. I mean there's General I, and Dr. One, Shepherd. One of the stories in the series I didn't read, but um I read the other two. I think there's only three. Um I read the NCIS one and I read the the prequel. Um but but I didn't Oh, I'm sorry. I read, there's four. I read so I read three of the four. I didn't read. I think it's it's the second one about John and Rodney is the one I didn't read yet. And the general um, and Doctor Shepard. Yeah, but I that's the first one I ever read. Yeah, and I then read I read the prequel, prequel first. So I um I don't remember raping her stories. So um, no, me neither. Fucking asshole. I maybe I'm just <laughs> missing something, but I don't I don't recall it. If it's there, I probably blocked it out. But but I just can't imagine that um, you know that that would be happening in, her, in in anything I know of her writing that would be happening in in the main relationships. Um, but anyway, but just to write somebody basically and say I'd like more rape in your stories, or less consent, and more abuse. That's basically what's being said there, and people say it. Um, in a variety of ways, you know. Um, but, okay, rape is a reality. It's a reality I don't like, and I don't particularly want to deal with it, and I'm not interested in fetishizing it. Um, and that's what a lot of this is. I would me um, in private and asked me what CBT is. It's cock and ball torture. I'm sorry that we didn't clear that up earlier when we, when we were talking about it, and I just saw your I am just now. My bad. <laughs> I'm not actually yeah. on Facebook as a rule in my podcast, so um, I didn't realize that that had um, hit my inbox until just now. But CBT stands for cock and ball torture. 
which is which is a kind of porn that I actually like to watch. Um, I don't have a lot of regard for those those bits, so what the hell? Um, anyway, but you know, I I I don't I don't I don't I'm not interested in reading about the fetishization of rape. Rape happened, like, and I and I actually, you know, because I on the podcast I have been very um, clear about my stance about reading rape, and I won't read it. There's a lot of stories that people have recommended to me that have rape in them, and I won't read them. Um, and so people will call me out, and I've had people call me out for being hip, a hypocrite because, um, like, uh, um, um, one of the ones that was in DeNovo, somebody wrote me about um, the fact that there's um, the, that my case is a serial rapist when I am so, um, I think she said high and mighty or something like that, about not wow. reading, reading rape stories. And I was like, oh, my God. If you can't tell the difference between um, a case, them working cases where somebody, a, a rape case, and the main character being graphically raped for titillation purposes, you're too stupid to read my stories and you need to stop. <laughs> and we hope you're listening to this podcast. I truly do. Um, that's just insane. But I guess the main point um, is that ideas bounce, um, and uh, they bounce around your head. And um, when you capture one, and um, you kind of look at it and twist it around and turn it and move it and, and, and see what it does. Um, and ask yourself questions and play with it, maybe even ride testing, like I said earlier, you know, do writing exercises about it. Um, and I did that a lot with uh, um, synthetic, and that's what you guys um, saw with my world building. Um, a, a lot of that was um, – now, one thing I actually – like, I did the timeline for the readers um, – but the rest of that were just writing exercises and me moving through the world building and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with it. And I shared that with you guys during um, before Rough Trade started. Um, and that's the kind of thing that I, I do a lot with um, stories to kind of hammer them out and move them around and, 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 and figure out what works and, and what doesn't. Yeah, and you have to give yourself the freedom to do that. And I think that's one of the things that I don't see a lot of um, fan fiction writers doing, at least a lot of the ones I've worked with and talked to, is they don't they don't um, put time into writing that they don't think is going to go anywhere or may not go anywhere or just playing with an idea. It's like if it's not going to go up, they're not going to put time to it. And you really do hamstring your creativity when you do that. I mean, you've got to give yourself room to play. To create, to be creative. I had creative. someone tell me once that doing all that stuff was a waste of time if you're not going to share it. <laughs> okay. No. <laughs> she did. She did. She did say that. She said it was a waste of time to do that kind of thing if you weren't going to share it with other people. Um, which boils just... down to the other thing that I would say um, to any writer, no matter what you're writing, write for yourself. Don't write for anybody else. Right. You and you'll get you'll 
the more freedom you give yourself and the more you give for yourself permission to just write for yourself, I think the more and the more you talk to other authors, um, the more you're going to have more ideas. Um, and when you when you are watching the show or the movie or reading a book or you're talking to another author or you're reading a story, um, another piece of fan fiction, and a what if crosses your mind. I wonder what would happen if, you know, they had gone a different direction with that decision or whatever. Write that down. Play with it. Let it sit there and kind of percolate because it wouldn't have crossed your mind if it didn't intrigue you in some way. Um, but if you just you just can't dismiss um, ideas that pop into your head that aren't um, complete Viable. ideas. Yeah, you have to... There's all these, you know, there's all these fragments sometimes, and the fragments, creative fragments, and sometimes, you know, you come up with an idea that pulls six or seven fragments together of things that have just been kind of running around in your brain, and it's like, oh, they kind of all coalesced into this one thing like it was meant to be, um, but it wouldn't happen if you hadn't let those ideas kind of play with play with them and germinate, if you just dismissed your what ifs or your questions or your intrigue, because it wasn't a fully formed idea, a fully formed story, or whatever. Um, I just think I think if you people want to expand their creativity and they want to work on having um, unique and original ideas for places to take their work, uh, they got to take their own got to take their own um, constraints off and allow your character to grow. They do have to grow. They can't just be... um, Grow and change and be different. And yes, you can write the same character 20 different ways. And they won't be the same person, but they will be the same character. Um, I think I've got some very good examples of that on my website. You do. And if you are writing the same character, if you're writing 20 stories with a character and they are carbon copies in every story, you don't have any character growth. That's just... You, and you haven't like, told you know, 20 stories. You've told seven stories a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever read um, an author? There's an author I stopped reading when I was a teenager because it was obvious that she worked with, like, a paragraph library. Um, like, you, you'd find a whole sections word for word the same in multiple stories. And it's like she'd just pull from a paragraph library and construct a novel and put it out. That's kind of what you're doing when you don't evolve your character is you're kind of a character library and you just kind of plug and play. And um, if the character's static, um, unless you're an extremely, extremely, like you're a mystery writer or uh, if you're not focused on the character, maybe it doesn't matter. Um, Like if you're a case file, you like writing case files or mysteries or investigations and the characters are sort of secondary, this may not be your issue. But if you are character-focused and you are kind of using a character library where you just plug in the same character um, all the time, um, it's going to feel static and it's not going to feel very creative to you. So think about that. I mean, I use the same um, basic biographical data for Tony in almost every story I write for him. There's a few that I've changed it. Um but I still, even though I'm using the basic biographical data that's the same in every story, I still think through how the events that I've changed have, would affect him and make him different from story to story. Like in Vicious, um, I really thought through how Tony would be different if he had been seriously injured um, early in his career. 
So which is why he's radically different than I have written him in every other story, even though I use the same biographical data that I use in every other story. And I only mention the biographical data being the same because, sure, shoot, and somebody would write me after the podcast and say, but you use the same biographical data for Tony all the time. How can you say that he's different? Because he is different. He is. Somebody can be born on the same day in the same place, go through the same schooling, and not be... It's like saying that it's like saying two people who are, who are identical twins who have been together their entire lives are the same person, they're not. You know, you, you give people And if you're that person who's already trying to write that email to Jilly, um, shut the fuck up. Just saying. <laughs> there are if some you've already out there. opened Gmail <laughs> to write that shit, just stop. Just stop, because it's not the same. Um, like I said before, that that Harry, um, Harry Potter, um, I wrote Harry being raised by Sirius in two different circumstances, and while they're the same character, they're not, they're not the same person. And um, I, you just. Either you get it or you don't <laughs> when it comes yeah. to that. So, and if you're reading these stories and you think that Harry's exactly the same in all of my stories, then you don't get it, so don't worry about it. There you go. <laughs> and it's fine. It's fine that you don't get it. And I'm not going to explain it to you. Um, sometimes there will be little things in my stories, like little Easter eggs and, and things that I do that are going to fly right over your head. And if you don't get it, that's fine. It's there for the people who do get it. Does that sound elitist? Well, it's there for you because it amuses you, and some people will get it. Right. And some people will get it. Like all the references to, to um, The Prince's Bride in um, Birth of the Serpent King. That was awesome. That's what amused you. <laughs> I love like, The Princess Bride. It's my favorite movie. So often you will see little hints of it in other things. Like when Harry said he was mostly dead. When the assignment yeah. was given in Charms and, and um, Soulmate Bond. Um, mostly dead. So in, <laughs> and then... There's actually a scene in um, uh, Dark in uh, Dark Places in the Soul where John, where Rodney tells John to have fun storming the castle, uh, and it's just so it's gonna pop up because it's my favorite movie. That's just what it is. Yeah, it's part of your pop culture lexicon is the Princess Bride. I mean, it's, it should be part of, you know. In my opinion, everybody's pop culture lexicon, but, you know. If you've never watched The Princess Bride, those little references are going to go right over your head, and it's perfectly fine that they do. You know, it's not going to take away from your enjoyment of the story. Yeah. If you enjoy my work, and if you don't, why the fuck are you listening to my podcast? Oh, that reminds me. Dudes. Are you listening, dudes? I know you are, because... I made the mistake of looking at my statistics on Blog Talk. I'd like oh, to convince to to dedicate the last ten minutes of my podcast to this subject. I know that this the only way this is possible 
because most of my readers, my actual readers, most of my fans, most of my minions are female. There are men in my horde, but most of my horde is made up of women. But 75% of my listening audience on blog talk is male. Dudes, I know I sound young. In fact, I probably sound too young. I know you enjoy, apparently, when I say things like cock and pussy. But stop perving on me. What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> yes, For your stop reference. It. For your reference, 75% of my listening audience, which is male, I am 40-ish, married, and unavailable for your perversion, so will you please stop? <laughs> just, oh, come on now. It's really upsetting. Ah. <laughs> I told my husband, and he was like, what? I was like, I can't help it. He goes, but, you know, he told me that when we first started dating, if he hadn't met me before we talked on the phone, that he never would have agreed to date me. And that he almost asked me for my license on our first date, even though he'd already met me. And you are... I sounded like a child on the phone. And you were light years more mature sounding than Senna. Yeah. If you creepy fuckers are perving on Senna, I just stop it. Fuck you. <laughs> I'm gonna take her episode down if you don't stop. <laughs> she is also married and unavailable for your perversion. And an adult. <laughs> and an adult, yes. It was, an adult. She's not I, fourteen like, and living what? in Texas. When when I saw that, I was like, What the hell is this? What the hell is this? But you know, oddly enough, most of the women in my family um, sound like me. Um, me, my sister, and my mother, and two of my cousins, you can't, you could not tell us apart on the phone. If my sister did my podcast, the only way you would know the difference is that she wouldn't know who any of you bitches are. Well, and, and she would be discussing she be writing. Speak to your work. She, she would probably be talking about knitting, to be perfectly honest, and crochet. But other than that, she would that sound actually might not that just might not be a giveaway. Like me. That might not be a giveaway because <laughs> I could see if you decided you had a passion for crochet that we'd have an entire show about crochet. It could happen. I do quilt, but I don't crochet yet. There could be a whole craft. I'm thinking about taking it though. up for um, hand flexibility exercises. <sighs> Lady Holder, I hate to break it to you, but you wouldn't because my own husband can't tell us apart on the phone. I can't tell you how many times um, when I lived with my sister that he called our house and called my sister baby or asked her how her day was. One time she's talked to him for 15 minutes before he realized he wasn't talking to me. Fifteen whole minutes. And we'd been dating for a year. 
she know, asked my... how his day was, and they discussed our last date. <laughs> I'm just sitting there, I'm just staring at her, laugh, trying so hard not to laugh. And then when he finally caught on, he's like, "Why do you guys both be so mean?" <laughs> My sister, people think my sister and I look a lot alike. I actually, we neither one of us see it. But we never do. People who say you look alike, the people who are being told they look alike, all they see is their differences, not the similarities. Even right. identical twins, right? They'll be like, oh, but I have a mole here. You know, they go right to the differences. But I worked for the, I worked for this company for a few years, and I was working for the vice president of software. And um, I was, um, I had a broken foot, and I was on crutches. And um, my sister got a job at the same company, and we didn't work in the same department, but she worked on the same floor. And mind you, the biggest giveaway that we are not the same is that she's four inches shorter than I am. Besides other factors aside, <laughs> she's four inches shorter than I am, okay? But anyway, so um, the the VP I work for is also the VP of her division. And she's brand new at the company. And um, this vice president just keeps stopping and talking to her. And she was like polite but mystified and people would be asking her you know like how do you know him and she's like i don't know him but he'd just come by and say nice things to her you know how are you doing or whatever and usually she was like sitting at her desk or something and then i had no clue that this was going on and then one day (laughs) he sees her walking down the hall he says i'm so glad you're feeling better and she's like okay i'm glad i'm feeling better too and Later on, he sees me cripping around on my crutches, and he goes, weren't you off crutches this morning? I was like, I haven't been off crutches in the last four weeks. What's the matter with you? He goes, "I, do you have a clone? <laughs> I was like, no, I don't have a clone. What's the ma- I don't know. What are you talking about? He says, well, I saw a woman who was just like you, and she says, isn't in crutches, and I I asked, told her I was glad she was feeling better, and she said, thank you. I said, well, that's just right there on the surface doesn't sound like me. <laughs> so I said, yeah. I said, you know my sister works here, right? And he says, does she? And I said, yeah. I told her what, told him what, what department she worked in. And he said, do you two look exactly alike? Like, no, we don't look exactly alike. And so we go down there. If I take him down there, he goes, that's you. Winks to her and goes, that's you. I'm like, it is not. <laughs> and he just could not And you're see. not twins, right? No, we're not twins. We're, we're three, three and a half years apart. And um, we do have a lot of facial similarity. Um, our, but our hair color actually isn't the same. Our eye color isn't the same. And even if there wasn't a four-inch difference in height, um, I have... Um, G-cup boobs, and my sister's a C-cup. And I don't, I'm, I, I just expect guys to at least register the boob size difference, you know. Um, but he just, and we had this one receptionist that couldn't tell us apart either. And she would say, um, we'd walk, one of us would walk by and she'd go, um, which one are you? And I would just, I'd stop and I'd look at her and I'd go, excuse me? And she goes, oh, it must be chilly. Because I was the nasty one. Because your sister's much sweeter than you are. 
Yeah, it's a facade. She's not that nice at home. <laughs> but it's just, it's just <laughs> so weird when people can't <laughs> tell you apart. And people said we sounded the same, too, which we don't think we sound alike. But, you know, it's just one of those little odd things. I'm just looking up in the chat room, and yes, I think, do think, Lady Holder, that you do sound the oldest of the people who come on the show fairly regularly. You sound all grown up. And Cinna sounds the the youngest. So Lady yeah. Holder's the grown up. Yeah. She's all your your voice is normally a lot lighter, but but you've been sick, so. But yeah, dudes, yeah. If, if if you're listening to my show to purple my voice, I wish you would stop. But on the other side of it, I appreciate the ad revenue, so I'm on the fence about it. But if you are listening to my show for my per- for my voice, I would appreciate it if you would listen to the ads. You need to pay your way some way, dudes. I'm just saying. This shit ain't free. Talk, I think we need to be sure to at least, you know, early on in every show, talk about gay sex graphically for a few minutes <laughs> just to weed out. I don't the... think that matters. Because there are plenty of, in fact, one of my most popular episodes, I spend a good 25 minutes discussing the the mechanics of anal sex. Oh, we, didn't we have a whole show about? Yes. They don't care. They They like to hear me say cock. Apparently. But you better have your ad block turned off when you're on the fucking blog talk so I get something out of this. I'm not calling myself a hooker, but I'm just saying that you need to be paying your way, dudes. That's right. I was like, some, we got to get something. Here's got to get something out of this if you're going to be pervin' on her. <laughs> I'm just saying. 75% of my audience is here to purple my voice. You better be helping me pay the bills. And also, there's a website. There's a button on my website, and you can donate. Thank you. <laughs> That's one and way to show your appreciation. <laughs> Again, I'm not selling anything. I'm just saying <laughs> that none of this shit is free. And I would appreciate you listening to the fucking ads. Anyways, we only got 52 seconds left. Um, you guys have a great evening. And um, I'll probably see you on Sunday. We'll do another writing show. Lady Holder will be my hostage unless she has plans. Um, say goodnight, Julie. Good night, everyone. <laughs>